Amen. <clears throat> Good to see everybody here this morning. We, uh, we appreciate you for being here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to say uh, welcome to City of Hope Church. We appreciate you being here. We're honored that you're here. And in front of you, there should be a, a, a connection card. And if you would take the time just to maybe fill that out before you leave, and you can just drop it off back at the uh, welcome desk on your way out, we'd greatly appreciate that. Um, again, I want to say welcome to uh, Chad with Chad's Hope and Best Blessing. We're so honored and thankful for you guys to be here. You guys are a blessing to us. We love you. Uh, we, we truly, genuinely, we pray for you. We believe God's going to do great things in your life. We know that he's doing great things in your life. Uh, you encourage us as a church. Uh, you encourage families. You encourage moms and dads and brothers and sisters. And, and you're overcomers. You know, if the devil could have killed you, you already would have. But uh, the fact that you're still here and uh, the fact that you are still breathing shows that you've not yet been defeated. Amen. Let's give them a big hand this morning. If you got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn over to the book of Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. And we're going to start a new sermon series this morning called Jesus Uncensored. Jesus Uncensored. Because I don't know about you, but if you, 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 know, if you, if you read the Bible, if you don't pick and choose which verses you want to read and which ones you like. Now, there's some stuff in there that I wish wasn't in there, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're still responsible for all of it. Uh, but, but, you know, we, when you read the Bible and you hear some of the things that Jesus says, it's absolutely uh, almost unbelievable uh, uh, the things that come out of his mouth. Of course, he's God in the flesh. He can say whatever he wants to say. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And, and you know what? We're, you know, if we're saved, we're his servants. You know, we can't read the part of the Bible that we like and say, we'll take this, but we'll reject that. We like this. You know, it, it's not Burger King religion. You know what Burger King religion is, right? It's not the way that it works. But I found out that in our culture in America, you know, we, we want Jesus, we want church, we want God, we want heaven, we want the Bible. We just want these things on our terms. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we're willing to accept some of this stuff, or maybe all of this stuff that, that we believe or feel is relevant or is good, but, you know, for some reason, you know, the, the Bible is, is not a, a suggestion that, that we should consider, but the Bible is full of commands that we're to obey. And so, uh, when, when you're reading the Bible, Jesus said some pretty outrageous things. And what we're going to read about today, and what we're going to study over the next few weeks, is what is uh, typically referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes. Now, nothing is easier than coming to church hearing a message, being inspired by it, uh, saying you know, that was a good word, and then walking back out, going home, and never thinking about it ever again. But the Bible uh, and church within itself is it, not a place where you come to uh, listen to a sermon, but to receive your marching orders as you leave. So as we read through uh, Matthew chapter 5, and, and as we study the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, I want to put a disclaimer out there, and I want you to uh, try to view this and listen to this from this perspective. 
Jesus expects you to do what he says. And so he starts out here. Let's just go ahead and start reading here in, in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. If you're there, say amen. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to them. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Notice what he says here, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now look what he says here in verse 11. This is almost incomprehensible, okay? It's hard to comprehend. Look what he says here. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. And what a privilege it is just to stand here and to share your word with your people. Now, Lord, I ask for your help. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I ask for your Holy Spirit to anoint me to uh, anoint me afresh and anew today. Help me to speak and, and to serve new wine from heaven, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear and hearts that understand and wills that will obey. Help us to uh, not just hear this message today, but help us to do this message today. Teach us what it means to... Uh, Fulfill Lord, the Beatitudes, Lord, that you are talking about and you're teaching us over these next few weeks. And we'll give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus gives what is called, uh, or the entire chapter of what's called the Beatitude. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Some people consider this the, the greatest sermon ever delivered. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not just uh, messages where we just hear something, we uh, feel good about it, we, we, we're, we're just you know clapping our hands and shouting amen and all of this stuff. It's not just something that you hear, but Jesus is giving instructions on how to live the blessed life. Now, the blessed life is typically a lot different than what most people in America foresee it to be. There is this false doctrine called the prosperity gospel where people believe that God wants everybody uh, uh, rich, everybody to be, you know, materialistic, that you can pray for a Corvette and you get a Corvette. And you know what? You may pray for one and, and you may get one. And if you do, good for you. But that's got nothing to do with the gospel, okay? 
But I want you to know that, that, that there is a false gospel that's being preached. There is a false doctrine, false teaching, false uh, Jesus, false Christ. And Jesus prophesied this in the last days that, that, that false Christ will arise and deceive many. That if it were possible, even the elect of God would be deceived. And so there is a false gospel that's being preached. But, but when he's talking about the blessed life, he said, If you want to live a blessed life, then you are to be and to do these things that are listed in Matthew chapter 5. You know, the blessed life is, has got more to do probably with the exact opposite of what you think it does than it does what you can conceive in your own mind. When you think of being blessed, you're, you're thinking about being happy. Well, I mean, that's what blessed means. It means happy. It means highly favored. It means to, to rejoice. It means God's favors upon your life. And it says, you know, it says, be blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the first beatitude that he gives. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means that you have and possess a spirit of humility. And the Bible teaches us that we're not only to uh, have a spirit of humility, but we are to walk in in the spirit of humility. There's a lot of people that believe that humility is the highest of all Christian virtues. It's what makes us most like Jesus. Where pride transforms angels into devils, humility changes mere men into godly men and women. So humility is, is the characteristic that probably makes us most like Jesus. And he says, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus is not just giving instructions. Jesus led by his example. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So it's important that we grasp and we have this uh, view of Scripture in application of what we hear. You're not blessed if you hear the Word. You're blessed if you what? Do the Word. So, so how do we do being poor in spirit. First of all, let's define it. It means to have a spirit of humility. It means to walk in humility toward other people. What is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply just thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking of God and thinking of others. Humility is simply not thinking of yourself at all. The problem is, when we first get saved, we're still babes in Christ, and we think that everything revolves around us. We come to church to get fed, right? We don't read the Bible ourselves. You know, we've been in church for five years, ten years, fifteen years, and we still live our lives on Sunday to Sunday. We, we never grow up. Now, let me say this. God's will for your life and God's best for your life is not for you to go to heaven. It's not God's will for you to go to heaven. It's God's will for you to become like the one who's going to take you to heaven. God's will is not for you to get saved and satisfied at the same time. 
You know, there's no such thing as a free ticket to heaven. You know, the, you know, some people get saved by grace and paralyzed by it at the same time. But grace is given to us in order to empower us to change and become more like Jesus. Now, again, humility is not something that we're just to possess. It's something that we're supposed to do. Now, go ahead and go to this next slide here. This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter number 2, verses 4 through 8. Jesus gave us the example of what it's like to walk in humility. As a matter of fact, he expects every person that calls themselves a Christian to walk in humility. Now look what it says. This is a pretty good definition of humility. It says in verse 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Did you know if we just did that one verse right there, there would never be another church fight in the rest of the time until Jesus comes back? If we just put uh, and esteemed other people before ourselves, there wouldn't be a bunch of arguing, fighting, and fussing, and, and, and church splits, and, and divisions, and schisms, and cliques, and, and you know, the, nobody would ever feel like they, they weren't accepted. Nobody would ever feel like they weren't loved. Nobody would ever feel like they were an outcast or like they, they didn't belong if we just simply preferred other people over ourselves. That's what it means to, to walk in humility. He says, esteem others over ourselves. And then he gives us the ultimate example here, starting at verse 5. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man. What did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, who was fully God, who was fully God, fully man, who said, the Bible says, did not count it to be something to, to uh, be equal with God, took upon himself to be uh, the form of a bondservant. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. So, so listen, you think about this. God, who is the greatest of all, who, who is unequal, who has no equal, who is uncreated, who is eternal, who is everlasting to everlasting, he that is, was, and is to come, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Genesis 1 God, before everything was, he is, this same God humbled himself, and he took upon the form of a servant. What we have and who we have is a humble God. God is a humble God. And he says, listen, and this should be the mindset that is in you. He said, and blessed are you if you walk in this kind of humility, if you prefer others uh, over yourself, if you're willing to serve. Listen, if you're not serving, you're full of yourself. Saved people serve people. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so if you're not serving him, if you're not serving in a particular area of ministry, then you're still living for yourself. And he says, look, you're not going to be blessed if you continue to live a selfish life. Now, it's my job as your pastor to challenge your selfishness. How many has got some selfish areas in your life? For those of you that didn't lift your hands, I'm going to ask your husband or your wife. I guarantee they'll tell me the truth. And the truth is, we, we tend to look at ourselves uh, in a little bit better light than what we really are. You know what I'm saying? We want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But when we're talking about humility, we need to ask ourselves, how good am I doing? You know, how do I measure whether I'm walking in humility? If I'm going to live the blessed life, I have to be poor in spirit. I have to have a spirit of humility. And then I have to learn how to walk in humility. Now, to illustrate what it's like to walk in humility, uh, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. Joseph is a great example of what it takes for most people. Because, listen, Joseph was a good man. He wasn't a heathen. You know what I'm saying? Joseph knew God. Listen, he, flee, he flew from sexual immorality, you know. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and he ran away. I mean, he's a man of character. He's a, he's a good man. He loved God. And, he, you know, God gave him a dream. He, you, know, he was, you know, he had this integrity about him. But the problem was, Joseph, when he received this dream from God, he was still a young boy. He was a teenager. And the problem is, when you're young, there's still a lot of growing up that you have to do. There's immaturity that we have to grow out of. And then there's pride that we got to get rid of. Of. And so we're going to look at the life of Joseph and, and look at his example of what it takes and how it is that we are to learn to live a life of humility. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, as a young man, God gave Joseph a dream. You can read this in Genesis chapter 37. God gave Joseph a dream. And that dream became the defining purpose for Joseph's life. Joseph never understood the dream. He didn't fully knew, know what the dream was about. He just knew that the dream that he had came from God and that God wanted to use his life to do something special and incredible and to make a difference in the world. See, the same dream that God put in in Joseph's life is the same God who puts a dream in your life. Every person here should be carriers of a dream. You should be pregnant with a promise. You should have something, a sense of destiny for the reason why you woke up this morning. See, you, you, you weren't created to, to get saved. The reason that when you get saved and you remain here on earth is because God obviously has an assignment for your life. Your life has an assignment. And that assignment has a time frame on it. And that time frame is the duration of your life. That's why Moses wrote, Teach us to number our days that I might gain a heart of wisdom. So as a teenage boy, Joseph gets this dream from God. He doesn't understand it. He, he doesn't really know what it means totally. He just knows it came from God and that God wanted to use his life in a very special way. The problem was Joseph was young when he received this dream. Not only was Joseph young, Joseph was the youngest son of his father Jacob. And so him being the baby boy, and I know what it's like to be the baby boy, hallelujah. 
there are special privileges for the baby. There are special things that only the baby gets that nobody else gets. The problem with that is you end up spoiling the child. And so Joseph grew up receiving special treatment from his father. Joseph grew up and as a result of him being the baby and, and Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age, he shared and showed special favoritism. Not only did he show favoritism over his other brothers, he made Joseph a special coat. And so he, he receives this coat, he receives this robe, and at the end of the story, or as you read throughout this, the story of Joseph, what happens is that robe begins to cause both Joseph and Jacob a lot of pain. And so he receives special treatment, he receives favoritism, he, he has this special relationship with his dad, he's his dad's favorite, he's the baby boy, and Joseph knows it. Joseph gets this special coat, and let me tell you something, when you're the baby and you get a special coat, guess what you do? You wear it. You don't just wear it, you wear it all the time. You're like Macho Man Randy Savage, and you know what I'm saying? When you, when you walk out with a special coat, you're going, Oh, yeah! But the point is this, just because your father gives you a special coat doesn't mean that you're supposed to wear it all the time. Because the special coat that you may have received may communicate a totally different message to somebody else that you're in relationship with. And so when Joseph receives this coat, I see there's three mistakes, three major mistakes that he makes because this coat brought out and showed, revealed the immaturity that Joseph had. It also uh, showed and revealed the pride that Joseph had. Now again, Joseph is a good man. Now if you're writing things down, our printer's messed up, I don't want to give you notes. I'm going to encourage you to write a few things down. There's three major mistakes that he makes. The first mistake that he makes is he begins to bring his father evil reports about his brother. Now listen, if you read that story, what you'll find out is that what Joseph said about his brothers were true. Joseph didn't lie on his brothers. He told his father the truth about how his brothers really were. But the Bible says that what Joseph told his father was an evil report. Now listen, just because what you're saying is true about another person doesn't mean that you should go say it to anybody else. That was worth you coming this morning. That helped solve some of your problems, half of them right now. But he was telling the truth about his brothers, and so even though he's telling the truth, the Bible still calls it, an evil report. Now, no matter what his intentions were, he may have had good intentions. He may have had sincere, genuine intentions, but nevertheless, the Bible says what Joseph did was wrong. What was Joseph doing? He was being a tattletale. Nobody likes to be around a tattletale. We got a few tattletales in our house, don't we, girls? And guess who's the biggest tattletale? Jonah. Just so happened to be the baby. And not only does he tell on his other brothers and sisters, he knows how to dramatize it. 
Jews and everything. Now, Josiah could do something to Jonah. It would be 100% an accident. And I'll ask Jonah, I'll say, Jonah, did Josiah mean to do that to you? He said, yeah, he did. I said, what he did? And here's the thing about it. Like, he'll get in the middle of the story, and then he just goes into mumbling. Well, I, we were out there swinging. And, <laughs> so what do I do? I pick him up and go, oh, bless his heart. Well, you do that because he's, he's the baby. You know what I'm saying? But, but you, know, he, you know, this is what Joseph's doing. Except he's 17 years old. He's being a tattletale. And the Bible says that they were evil reports even though they were true. Now, here's some good lesson for us to learn here, okay? If what you have to say doesn't help anybody, don't say it at all. What Joseph said didn't help him. It didn't help his father. And it sure never helped his brothers. So just because what you know about somebody else might be true, if it's not helpful for anybody, shut up. And that's a biblical statement. There's a time to speak. There's a time to refrain from speaking. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is... I paused for an amen. It didn't come, but it's all good. So that's the first mistake that he makes. Here's the second thing. second mistake that I see that he makes is he begins to flaunt the coat of many colors. Just because your father gives you a coat doesn't mean you have to wear it all the time and everywhere you went. Okay? Just because you got a coat and the coat's beautiful and your dad gave it to you, you don't mean that you have to wear it all the time. As a matter of fact, the more Joseph wore that coat, the more problems it created in his family. You know, I believe the fact that he liked to wear the coat surfaces two major issues in Joseph's life that even though he's got a dream from God, even though God is really and truly preparing him to do something incredible, and if you've read the story, you know the outcome, I believe that the fact that he wore this coat all the time and he liked it so much and he flaunted it around reveals two major issues that he had to deal with. And, and if he didn't deal with these issues, then the dream that God placed in his heart would never come to pass. Now, those two issues are this. Number one, immaturity. And number two, pride. Listen, humility can only get, your, uh, get you out of what pride got you into. Humility will get you out of, and it's the only solution. It's the only option. There's not five ways to solve a pride problem. There's not... Ten ways. There's not two ways. There's only one way. The only way you get out of pride is to walk in humility. You know, the Bible says that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. As a matter of fact, if, if you're not walking in humility, you're not being able to walk in grace. The problem is there's a whole lot of people in church who are graceless Christians. They won't, you know, they won't humble themselves, therefore they disqualify themselves from grace. 
Therefore, since they have no grace, they're giving nobody else any grace at the same time. And so they're graceless, they're miserable, and you can tell just by looking, you know, the look on their face. Graceless Christians are miserable Christians. And you can only walk in grace to the degree that you're willing to extend grace to somebody else. So if you want to walk in grace, you've got to give it away. Which means you've got to humble yourself. You've got to give some people a break. But Joseph, he has these issues. He's got pride and he's got immaturity. And if he's going to see this dream come to pass, then he's going to have to deal with them. I believe that every person in here can relate to those two issues. Because every single one of us here, myself included, have some degree of immaturity in an area in my life that I need to grow up in. Can I get a witness? And every single one of us have pride in an area that we're going to have to get rid of. Most of the time, we have pride in the areas of relationship where the people we're together with matter the most. I wonder why it's so hard to say I'm wrong. I tell Rachel all the time, the Lord knows I have my problems, but being wrong is not one of them. Being humble. Sometimes you have to admit you're wrong. Let's practice it. You probably don't need to, just me, just say it with me. Say, say, say I'm wrong. Some of you are going. Cleanse your heart. Let's say it again together. I'm wrong. Here's another good one. I'm sorry. Say it. They said, I wonder how much better your relationship would be if you could just simply say them two things, but you can't because you're full of pride. If a stranger offended you, you know, you, you'd be able to let, let it go. Sometimes I get mad over stuff that I don't even know what I'm mad at. You ever been out, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I just get mad because I want to be mad. Because it's hard to walk in humility. It's hard to walk and say, I'm sorry, all the time. I didn't even know I was a selfish person until I got married. Some of you will get that when you leave. But the problem is this right here. When you live your life as a single individual for the majority of your life, it is impossible for you to see your selfishness. Impossible. You know, I had so much pride that God said, you know what, I'm going to have you to live with, five, with, with four women. And you know what, living with four women has been great for the ministry. You know why? I can't even get my feelings hurt without asking permission. Is it all right if I get mad? No. Okay. Is it, is it all right if I get if my feelings hurt? No. Okay. You, you got to go, you got to go get me a, you know, a cheeseburger. So that's good. It helps you. It, I mean, it, it helps you. But, but Joseph had this coat. He wore it all the time. He started flaunting it. Listen, when you are full of pride, you know, the Bible says that we are blind to our own faults. And so Joseph was blind to these things. And again, Joseph was a good man. Here's the third thing that I see. He begins to abuse his spiritual gift. 
Now, God gave Joseph the spiritual gift of interpreting dreams. And it was God who gave him this gift. But the problem is Joseph took this God-given gift of interpreting dreams and then he used that gift to make himself look better than everybody else. And that tends to be the, the, the you know, human nature. You know, he, he, he began to, to use this dream to make himself look better than his brothers. You know the story, right? He, he used this gift of interpreting dreams to, to, to make himself to look better than his father. He says, and then the dream came, and then I stood before, and then all of you were bowing to me. That's a death wish when you've got older brothers. That immediately puts you on the assassination list. I mean, it's a death wish. But, I mean, he used this dream. Did God give him the dream? It was a God-given dream. And so he had the gift of interpreting dreams. But then he took this dream to make himself look better than everybody else. The problem is this. When you start to abuse your gift, the reason we abuse gifts is because we have a desire to be admired by other people. And in our desire to be admired by other people, we abuse God-giving gifts in order to make ourselves look better than others. That's what Joseph did. Joseph used his gift to make himself look better than his brothers. Not only that, he used his gift to draw attention to himself. Now, here's the problem. Listen. If we don't learn this lesson, we're going to spend a lot of time here. Failing to learn God's lesson of humility can cause our pain and problems to last longer than they really have to. If we don't learn how to walk in humility, you're going to extend the season of pain and problems that you're currently in until you learn that lesson. Because the truth is we don't typically fail God's tests. We just keep taking them over and over again until we learn them. The children of Israel died in the desert. They wandered around for 40 years because they never learned the lesson that God was teaching them. Their destiny was to go to the promised land. Their destiny wasn't to die in the wilderness. There's some of you, you are in a wilderness season that has been prolonged by your unwillingness to be teachable in the moment that you're currently in, in the season that you're currently in. And if you remain unteachable, you know what? You're as smart as you're ever going to be. That was the problem with Samson. Samson become unteachable. He become so puffed up in his own strength and his own gifting and in his own talent. He didn't listen to God. He didn't listen to anybody. He just went out and he showed off. And you know what? He ended up dying, in my opinion, prematurely with full of potential. I wonder how many people go to their grave having never tapped into the potential and greatness that God placed within them when he gave them a dream. Why? Simply because they refuse to learn the lessons of humility. Now, there's four things that I see that happens in Joseph's life that taught him lessons of humility. Here's number one. Number one, the trials that he went through. Trials come unexpectedly. Now, Joseph had this dream from God, all right? 
But he was not prepared on how God was going to fulfill this dream that he had placed in his heart. The problem he was having was there was family problems, tension, there was strife, there was anger, there was resentment that had been being built and built and built over the process of time simply because his dad was showing favoritism. You know what? Maybe some of you have that same anger and resentment. Maybe you come from a home where a mom or a dad showed favoritism uh, toward a another sibling, and, and you were the one that felt rejected or abandoned or looked down on. Maybe you feel like you're the black sheep of the family. Maybe you feel like that you never measure up. Maybe you were never as gifted or talented or you didn't get as much attention as somebody else did. And so that's what's happening in Joseph's home. In Jacob's life, he showed favoritism. This was his youngest son, son of his old age. He was the baby boy. He had special treatment. He had special favoritism. He had a special robe. He wore this robe and it made his brothers resentful. And so God was going to use the dysfunction of his family to help begin to chisel away all of the immaturity and pride that was in his life. And God was going to use the betrayal and the pain his own family caused Joseph to prepare him to become the man of God he was destined to become. But Joseph didn't know that. Joseph just had a dream, and he thought it was just going to happen just like this, 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 and this. You know how you envision things to happen in your life? You know, you get a word from God, you're in prayer, or, or, or you're reading the Bible, you're thinking, yes, 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 yes. But typically what happens is, from the day a promise is given to the day that promise is fulfilled, there's a season where the exact opposite of what you thought was going to happen actually happens. Now, that's a good word right there. So if you're in that season where the exact opposite is happening and you're trying to be faithful and you're trying to be committed and you're doing your best and you've got a good attitude and you're walking in humility and you're trying to learn whatever lesson you've got to live, learn, hang on, his promise is true that will come to pass. His word will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word by no means will pass away. You just have to go through this trial. Because typically in life, you're either in the middle of a trial, coming out of a trial, or heading into a trial. Trials are a part of life. And so trials also come unexpectedly. When you read, again, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, the Bible says, listen to this, the Bible says that his brothers were so angry at him that they could not speak peaceably to him. Have you ever had people in your life that you can't do anything good enough to make them happy? They can't stand you. Maybe, maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe, you know, it, it's a brother. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a church person. But you know what? You, you just, they just, they just treat you bad. They look down on you. They, you know, there's nothing you can do. You, you, you know, you, you, you can just tell that there's something that they just don't like about you. But in reality, they just don't even know who you are. And, and so... This is what's happening in Joseph's life with his brothers. But this example teaches us something, that humility will always be a lifelong lesson that we must continue to learn. You never reach a place 
to where you stop growing in humility. You know, the Apostle Paul, you, you can see his progression in humility. When he first refers to himself, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Later on in life, he refers to himself, he says, you know what? I am the least of the saints. And then toward the end of his life, he says this about himself, I am the chief of sinners. And so he's growing in humility, but he's also growing in spiritual authority because God never gives great power to people who do not possess great humility. Okay? Now there's going to be abuses of power, there's going to be people in positions of authority who possess power that God allows to, 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 to be there. But I'm talking about power for good. Okay? So this is what he had to learn. Trials come unexpectedly. Number two. Second thing I've learned is this. Trials touch the most delicate part of our lives. In Joseph's life, it was this royal robe. And this royal robe had a deeper meaning than just a coat he put on and wore around in front of everybody. This coat represented favoritism of his father that his father showed him over his brothers. This coat represented the special relationship that Joseph had with Jacob that nobody else had. You know, Joseph walked around flaunting his coat and every one of his brothers understood that his father loved him more than he loved them. And as a result, that caused problems in his life. And so he started walking around going, you know what? I am my father's favorite. You know, the great thing about the gospel is this, is that I am God's favorite. I can prove it to you in the Bible. Because when John the Beloved writes in the book of John, he refers to himself as John the Beloved, the one whom the Lord loves. Now, that used to tick me off when I read it. I mean, it did. I mean, I honestly read that many times and said, who in the world does this sissy boy, I don't know who he thinks he is, but he must think that he's better than the rest of the apostles out here. The one he the Lord loves. I mean, I mean that, when, look, when you have an orphan heart, that's the way you view life. That's the way you view love. And I'll never forget the day. I was reading it. I tried to skip over it, but I was reading through the Bible one year, and I can't skip that one, right? And you can't skip pieces of the Bible. You have to read it, even if with a bad attitude. I'm reading that, and I'm going, the disciple whom the Lord loved. And I was like, who does he think he is? And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Donald, don't you know he's talking about you? And for the first time in my life, my eyes were open to the reality that God really does love me like that. That I am, I could stand here today and tell you unequivocally with truthfulness that I am the one who the Lord loves. 
But the wonderful thing about that is, is that God is love. He's not trying to love you or me. God is love. And so God can love me, and he can love you, and 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 it not diminish one thing about who God is or his love for you. So that gives us the right to stand before God, not in pridefulness, but in from humility, and sit here and say, I am the one that you love. that be true? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know my past? Have you heard what come out of my mouth? Do you know what I've done wrong? Do you know my criminal history? Do you know my rap sheet? Do you know my secret sins? Do you know what I've done when nobody else was around? See, justification doesn't just provide forgiveness of sins. It also provides absence of reminding. God doesn't save you and then remind you of who you used to be. You are a new creature. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I could preach for an hour just, just on that one thing. But, but the problem is this. Joseph was still insecure, but he knew his dad loved him more than he loved his brothers. And so he began to show that uh, toward his brothers and that made his brothers angry and resentful. Now let me ask you a question. What was the first thing that his brothers took when they grabbed a hold of him and threw him in the pit? What's the first thing? For Joseph, that robe represented favor. It, it, it represented affirmation. It represented acceptance. It, it represented uh, that he was loved more than the others. To his brothers, it represented favoritism. It represented unfair treatment. It, it represented rejection. It represented uh, abandonment. It, it represented a lesser value to them that his father had placed on Joseph versus the favor and the love that Joseph or that Jacob had placed on Joseph. Therefore it made him angry. And so the first thing that they took from Joseph was his coat. Listen to this. The first thing that God allows to be stripped away from us is often the thing that we hold most dear. Some of you may have lost a lot. Some of you, there may be things in your life that you felt like that you had to have, that you can't live without, that if you lost this, life wouldn't be worth living. If that's what's happening to you, I promise you this much. God will show you that the very longings of your heart were designed to be fulfilled in Him alone. No amount of pleasure 
No amount of success, no amount of, of prestige, of wealth, or whatever it is that you're looking for will ever be able to fulfill you because you were created with these longings that would ultimately draw you to him, but Satan has offered you counterfeits, and because you have this insecurity in your heart, immaturity in your spiritual development, you have pursued lesser things than the love that God has for you that can fully satisfy you for eternity. You have to be careful because here's what's going to happen. If you start loving something too much, I can just about guarantee if you're God's, he's going to take it away from you because he's going to always put you in a place where you're going to have to choose, do I love God or do I love the robe? Look at your neighbor and say, beware of loving the robe. If you love anything more than you love God, I can just about guarantee the outcome of what's going to happen with that. Because he won't have any other gods before him. And there can be good things. Listen, I've seen people that have prayed and prayed and prayed for children... They, they, you know, there's a miraculous conception that's there. God provides a miracle. And the same gift that God's given them, they use to not even come back to the house of God. I've seen people pray and pray and pray for a new job. And then they get a new job, they get a promotion, they get an increase in income. And guess what? They start buying more stuff. And they get more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And pretty soon we take the gifts that we have been given and then make gods out of them. See, the truth is, if our love for God is not tested on a regular basis, it's going to be put to death. It's going to be put to the test. We're going to become lukewarm. I'm about to wrap it up here. Here's the third thing. third thing is, trials often come from people we would least expect. You know what I found out? We tend to be shocked when we come to the place where we realize that Christians are just people too. Did you know that? Did you know that pastors are just people too? Now, if you put your expectation on somebody and your expectation is too high, listen, I can promise you, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. So don't put me up on a pedestal somewhere. Don't, don't look at me any differently than you look at anybody else just because I'm a pastor or I hold a position or I'm standing in front of you. You know what? I'm just a person just like you. And I am fully capable of failing and falling on my face if it not for the grace of God. I need God just as much as you need God, if not more. I remember when I first got saved, I thought I needed so much grace from God just to remain saved. Because I was dysfunctional. I thought that I needed grace and grace and grace and grace. And then finally one day God showed me. He said, Donald, there was a time when you thought you needed so much grace. And I did need a lot of grace. Still do. But he says, now what happens if you have a moral failure? Whose life will be affected by that? 
Now what happens if you don't handle the money within the church appropriately? Whose lives will be affected by that if you blow it that way? What happens now if you get off into some kind of erroneous teaching that leads people into deception and they believe what you said because you are a person in a position of power and influence, then whose lives are going to be affected by it? Now, I can promise you that's a sobering thing to think about that if you blow it, every person's life that you carry influence in is affected by it. That's a big deal. That ought to keep you close to God. But they come from people that we least expect. Now here's the problem. Go ahead and come to the music I'm finishing up. If you can learn this one lesson, it'll save you years, years of heartache. And that lesson's this. Am I out? I couldn't even tell that I was out. I was yelling you. But if you can learn this one lesson, it'll save you years, decades maybe, of heartache, disappointment, of unforgiveness, of resentment, of anger. And that's this. People are not your enemy. I know that sounds deeply profound. But listen... People are not your enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Clay just got through doing a series on spiritual warfare. But people are not your enemy. But the problem is, if you make people out to be your enemy, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to make a lot of enemies in the days ahead. But people are not your enemy. And the problem is, when you get hurt by people that you don't expect to be hurt by, we tend to respond emotionally, and not just emotionally, we tend to respond irrationally. The first reaction is typically the wrong reaction because the first reaction is typically overreaction. A lot of the problems in our life is not because what happened to us. A lot of problems in our life is really because how we responded to what happened into our life. Now that was good right there. But the question is, how do you handle when the pressures get put on, when you disagree with people, when you get offended. I mean, I should not ever be surprised by this, but I'm never surprised, but then I'm surprised when people who are supposed to be deeply committed to you all of a sudden disagree with you and walk right out of your life forever as if you never existed. Hardest thing that you'll ever experience as a pastor, probably as a person. But it happens all the time. All the time. Now this brings us to the last thing. Let me, let me mention one more thing about the emotions. Emotions are wonderful servants but horrible masters. And if you are an emotional Christian where you allow your emotions to drive you to action, 
you need to prepare yourself for the devastation that's going to be waiting you just around the corner. Because emotions will lead you astray every time. But yet we have to learn how to channel these emotions the right way. Stand with me. Here's the last thing. The last thing is trials bring us to a point to where we're changed. That's the very reason why God allows us to go through trials, and that is to change us. Now listen, God will save you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you in that mess. And so God allows trials to come into our life. Listen to this. A trial is an adverse set of circumstances in your life, either allowed or created by God, that are designed to develop you spiritually. In other words, your trials are custom-made to bring the greatness God has placed within you out. And so when you consider what Joseph was going through and all that Joseph was going through, why would God allow something to happen to a guy who was really a good guy? He was a godly man. He, he, he lived a life of integrity. He lived a life of sexual purity. He lived a life of loving God. You know, he, he wasn't a heathen. He wasn't out living sinfully. But he had immaturity in his life. He had pride in his life. He made a few mistakes, but which of us don't? But what was God thinking? More importantly, what was Joseph thinking? Have you ever been in a place in your life when you're trying to serve God with all the sincerity, all the genuineness, all the passion, all the love, all the heart, with everything in you, only for things to go from bad to worse? Because that's what happened to Joseph. Things went from bad to worse. The worst thing he went through wasn't the first thing he went through. And typically, that'll be our lives as well. The first thing you went through won't be the worst thing that you went through or will go through. Yet Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. There he was serving in Potiphar's house where Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, but he would not give himself into sexual immorality. Therefore, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. And then from there, because of his false accusation, he didn't do anything wrong, he is thrown into the prison. Not just into prison, he's thrown into the inner prison, the darkest part of the dungeon. Things are going from bad to worse. Why is this happening to Joseph? I mean, God gave him a dream. And through these sequences of events... As we'll learn here in the next couple of weeks, we'll find out that Joseph is in a place where he couldn't be any farther away from the fulfillment of that dream in his life than he was at that moment. So the question is, how do you respond when you receive unfair treatment? How do you respond when you're believing God to things around for things to get better but they end up going from bad doors. How do you respond? Where is God when those things happen? Why is God allowing those things 
to happen in the first place. The problem is when you are going through seasons like that and you're hurting so bad, listen, the only thing at this moment Joseph could think about was not the dream, it was his pain. And the problem is this, when you focus on your pain, it will always keep you from being able to see the big picture. God gave him a dream. Did God give him a dream? Is God a man that he should lie? Is he faithful? Is his promises true? Does what he say come to pass? Problem is, when you're hurting, you can't see the big picture of what God is doing. Man, I feel like I'm speaking to people this morning. Some of you, at one time, you had a dream. You believed God. You were on fire for God. You were ready to sell out and do anything and everything for the gospel. But somewhere along the way, you were met with disappointment, met with betrayal. You were let down. You were hurt maybe by somebody else, a pastor, another Christian. And you know what? You got your focus on your pain, and you can't see the big picture of what God is doing at this moment. That's where Joseph was at. He was focused on his pain. He couldn't see the big picture. Listen to this. The shortest road to your destiny is the trials that are designed to bring the best out of us. The pathway to the promised land always leads through the wilderness. And the wilderness was designed either to bring out the best or the worst in the children of Israel. Unfortunately, it brought out the worst. How's the trial that you're going through? What's it bringing out of you? Your season in the wilderness, what is surfacing? What's manifesting in your life? How are you handling the pressure you're under? How are you dealing with the pain that you've been through? What are you focused on? I believe God wants to change that this morning. He wants to turn that around. What was God doing in Joseph's life? He was changing Joseph from a boy with a dream to a man of God with a plan. Let me say that again. God was changing Joseph from a boy with a dream to a man of God with a plan. And God wasn't punishing Joseph for his sins. He was preparing him for the greatness that was still yet ahead. I, I believe with all of my heart, some of you, you can't see that right now, but the difficult times that you're going through right now, God is going to redeem as soon as you take a step back and change your focus. Listen, God can turn it completely around just like that. But if he doesn't, can you still stay committed? Can you still stay focused? Can you still stay self-focused uh, on Jesus and going after him? Let's bow our heads. Father, this morning, I feel your presence. I believe that what you've given me, you wanted me to share with your people. And I've done it to the best that I could. Lord, your word says that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the broken, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I ask you right now, Lord, 
that you would take the truths that have been shared this morning and help us to understand and identify with Joseph. Help us to learn the lessons from his life that are important to us at this time. Regardless of how difficult things are, help us to stop focusing on our pain and shift our focus upon you because, Lord, you're changing us. You know, a pearl is formed through a process. And what happens is a clam or an oyster, a grain of sand gets caught in, inside the clam and it's trapped in there. And while it's trapped in there, what happens, that grain of sand begins to irritate this clam. And as a result of the irritation, it causes the clam to release a fluid, to, to release uh, 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 something from within itself that ultimately, as a result of the irritation, begins to form what we call a pearl. And listen, a pearl is something that is extremely precious, something that is rare, and something that's very expensive. And, and I believe what you're going through right now is much like what a clam goes through as it begins to produce something valuable. It's irritated. I believe God is using the very thing that is bringing you so much discomfort, that's bringing you so much pain, that, that's bringing you so much grief, aggravation, anger, whatever that may be. And he's wanting to use that to produce something so valuable in your life that it will make you forget everything that you went through or it will at least make what you went through not matter anymore. So if you're here this morning and you can relate to what Joseph went through, you're going through a trial right now. Maybe you're experiencing family problems. Maybe you've got restrained relationships among those that you're closest to. Maybe you've experienced something that caught you off guard. Maybe you're dealing with the anger and resentment that Joseph brothers dealt with because you've been treated unfairly. As they begin to sing and as they begin to play, if God's been speaking to you this morning, I want to encourage you just to get out of your seat and come up here to this altar. If we've got some, some altar workers that are here this morning that you'd be willing to pray with folks, won't you come up here and stand?